I am Dave Frank and I'm hosting this episode of I'm Glad I Heard That. And the desire in our heart behind this is to create content that men can listen to and watch. And at the end of it, you would be able to say, I'm really glad I heard that. Today's guest is Dr. Doug Carpenter. He is the owner of Insight Counseling Services in uh, Auburn Hills now, Doug? Auburn Hills. Auburn Hills. And I got to meet Doug a few years ago and him and some of his team came in and did a series of uh, parent training nights for us. And um, that was responded to very well. And over the years, I've touched base with Doug from a time or two for either a referral or just to bounce something off of him. And recently he's re uh, written a book about childhood trauma and non-alpha males, which we're gonna talk a little bit more about in this podcast. And so I asked Doug if he would be willing to come on and share some of his heart and his perspective. And so I'd like to say, welcome, Doug. Thank you, I'm very happy to be here. So let's kind of start with you personally. Okay. How did you, um, you, where'd you grow up and a little bit about your childhood? Okay. I grew up in Southern Illinois. It was about 70 miles from St. Louis um, in a little town called Vandalia and it had about 5,000 people in it. Okay. So it was, it was basically a farming community. Uh, my father was not a farmer. He was more of a businessman. We owned a burial and vault company. So, <laughs> so you had somebody in your family who died you came through our family. Right. So, um, yeah, it was just Southern Illinois, pretty rural, rural part of Illinois. And so growing up in the rural Illinois area, at what point did you start to put like, maybe I want to do counseling as my career in your uh, thoughts? Well, that came about probably in the sixth grade. And oh. what sparked that was I noticed that there was a girl at school who um, would go to the lunchroom with all of us, but she never ate lunch. And I could never figure out why is this girl not eating lunch? And so um, I always kind of was a kid with a soft heart and had a lot of compassion. So I, I tried to make friends with her, got to know her, found out the reason she wasn't eating lunch is because she didn't have the money to eat lunch. Hmm. So I went home and told my mom, hey, there's this girl who comes to lunch every day. She doesn't eat because she doesn't have the money. So for the rest of the year, my mom sent double lunch money with me and I bought this girl's lunch for the rest of the year. And in the course of that year, toward the end of the year, she shared with me that her stepfather was sexually abusing her. And so I went to the school authorities and told them that and we ended up in a court case where her family, she was taken away from that family and, and placed in a foster care um, with a foster family that really cared for her, took her to okay. church and it, it ended up being a really positive story, but that sparked my interest in helping people. I, I always say though that psychology chose me, I didn't choose it, <laughs> because it, I was just naturally bent that way. I think even from a little kid to be compassionate and to see the needs of other, other people. And then when I got to college, I would sit through psychology classes and like the lights would just go off, everything would make sense. I would remember all the material then I'd go to math and I'd sit there like drooling, like <laughs> I, I don't even know what's going on. You know, so I always say psychology chose me, I didn't choose it. <laughs> All right, so sixth grade Doug. Yes. You know, like just thinking about that story. And again, you, you know, we talk about these things, you know, like in that moment when you went through that, that was the biggest event of your life. And now it's a sentence or two, right? You know, right. Oh, it was huge right? as, as a okay. kid that age. So your parents believed you after you told the school authorities about this and... Oh, absolutely. I mean, it, at that point I had really built a close relationship with this girl. We kind of, 
probably become kind of best friends. I mean, I ate mm -hmm. lunch with her every day because she didn't sit with anybody. She was definitely a, a girl who had, was being raised in poverty, you know, so she didn't have many friends at school. Um, and I just felt bad for her. So I got to know her, I sat with her, I became her friend, gained her trust, and she divulged this. And, and yeah, I mean, I was, I was a pretty good kid, so my mom, you know, if I went home and told my mom something, she never questioned what I told her. You just think about it, it's like, because that was what, late 70s, early 80s, when that experience was happening. And you're, you just think about these things that form our trajectories. Imagine if, because back in that time, imagine if the school didn't handle it well. Imagine if they just kind of, you know, which we've heard horror stories Absolutely. of things like that, right? You know, where they said, no, you know, it's fine, you know, quelch it or whatever. Or your parents say, hey, that's really not your business. Don't worry. Like there right. could have been two or three things that, and who knows how yes. that would have a, impacted that girl physically. Right. And, you know, safety wise. But for you, like in those stars lined up or whatever yeah, happened. The, it, and, it did. The stars just lined up and, and. I, I don't know if it was because I was involved in that situation, but once I got to high school, um, I was invited to work in the guidance and counseling office as a student helper. And so through high school, I did mm. that. So there I was again at a young age, kind of in the, in the counseling arena, you know, going and get, getting kids out of class that needed counseling to bring them to the counselor. And, answering the phone. I mean, I was kind of a receptionist for the guidance and yeah. counseling office, but you know, I became aware of a lot of things that were going on with kids and helping keep the records and things like that because they used student interns to help do that. So, fantastic. Kind of stayed in that arena. So, you go to college, um, what was your your first degree in before your doctorate and then well, I first, you know, because I was caught up in this mindset of helping people, and I, I was a pretty good church boy. You know, I'd been playing the piano in church since I was 14 and still do today. So mm -hmm. however many years that's been, I've always <laughs> been involved in church work. Um, so I first thought I wanted to go into the ministry. So I went to a Bible college um, and earned an associate's degree in um, religious studies. And, you know, I was doing a lot with the music there. Um, but the times that through that training we would have to get up and speak, like in chapel or whatever, mm -hmm. um, I didn't mind doing that. I don't mind public speaking, but I would just leave with a sense of this is not where it's at. This is not what I'm called to do. I want to sit down with people one-on-one -on -one and okay. talk through some of the deepest issues that they have and the things that they're going through to try to offer them a different perspective. You know, I, the whole standing behind a pulpit thing just wasn't fitting me well, even though yeah. I could do it. So, you know, after a year and a half of going to Bible school, I decided, you know, I think I want to go into psychology mm -hmm. um, and go down the counseling route so I can set with people on an individual basis. And so that's kind of what turned that around. And I changed my tra trajectory there and yep. started going down the, getting a doctorate in clinical psych. So, you know, I went to college for two years for uh, theology and then another nine to earn a doctorate <laughs> in clinical psych. So, you know, yeah. I, I finally had my doctorate when I was 28. So I've been doing this since I was 28 years old. Wow. Um, were your parents supportive of your educational choices? Oh, I extremely. Um, my Neither one of my parents went to college, um, mm -hmm. but my dad 
was pretty successful with running a business and I heard your dad was killing it in business. Might get it. <laughs> <laughs> Good one. He Thank had a you. sign on his desk that said we're the last to let you down. <laughs> and we truly were. Yep. Um, so yeah, he he was doing really well. And so he told us kids as long as you you know, stay on the straight and narrow as long as you, you know, make good grades and you take college serious. I will help pay for it. I, I will make sure you get through. He just had no idea I was going to get a doctorate. So he really, because I didn't know we were yeah. going to school for 10 years. Yeah, you, he, know? you know, to me, he would say, I didn't know you were going to become a professional student and he would <laughs> give me a hard time. But then my mom would tell me, yeah, you should hear him talk about you to his friends. You know, he's yeah. brags about you that he's got this son who's getting a doctorate and is going to be a doctor and blah, 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 and all this stuff. But yep. he, he wasn't real forthcoming with the praise <laughs> like that with me. It was more just kind of giving me a hard time about oh, bust your chops. how much money I was spending. Mm -hmm. uh, although I got lucky because my sister, who is somewhat of a brainiac, had a full paid scholarship to the University of Illinois. Yep. So he didn't have to spend much money on her so I Even just tell him hey I used hers and I used mine <laughs> awesome and so now how long have you been running insight counseling services um, we opened in 2014 before that I worked at perspectives of Troy for almost 10 years okay counseling in a Christian arena and then in 2014 um, really, when my kids were in high school and I needed to get them to games and stuff, I needed to be closer to home than having to travel 75, you know, to Troy every day. Yep. So uh, that's when we opened up in Rochester. And we just recently moved this past summer into a bigger, bigger office area. And so it's right inside office. So if someone yes. Googles Insight Counseling Services in Michigan and you guys show up, um, when I read it, at least, the uh, the list of services you offer, you have a team of how many staff? There are 15 therapists. So uh, I'm the only fully licensed doctorate level psychologist, but most of the people there have a master's in social work, master's in, in counseling through an LPC, yep. um, or a limited licensed psychologist. So there's 15 of us. Our website is www.insightcounselingpc.com. Um, and there's pictures of all the therapists there and all their specialties. Um, we have a wide range of services because our, there are 15 of us. So there are four I was five. really impressed when I looked through it. It's yeah. like, it, and, and again, because you're a larger house, there's better insurance taking and different things like that. So if you're looking to maybe meet with someone or to reach out to someone, I suggest you go to the insightcounselingpc.com uh, and, and check mm -hmm. through and read through the services because that I think your team can really offer. And there's a Christian Absolutely. background in your counseling. Yes. I mean, we don't technically advertise as a Christian counseling clinic, but everybody who works there is a is Christian. A believer in we Jesus. make sure that that is, you know, great part of the criteria of what we do. And like you said, we take really almost every insurance. I can't really think of, we don't, we don't take Medicaid. Um, but beyond that, private insurance, we take almost everything that I'm aware right. of. Okay, so um, kind of what got me interested in talking with you is I remember you talking about writing a book a couple of years ago and then it finally got released. Um, yes. The book is called uh, Childhood Trauma and the Non-Alpha Male. And boy, if that title doesn't get you excited. <laughs> but knowing you, and so forth, I said, okay, you know, I definitely, I, I want to read about this and I want to kind of get into it. And after reading it, that's when I started to reach out to you and say, hey, could we, could we talk about this? Sure. So, you know, first of all, why did you want to write this book? Well, I believe that there's 
many more men in our society that fall into the category of being a non-alpha male, and the research backs that up, than an alpha male. You know, if you, if you look at the definition of an alpha male or what society has told us an alpha male is, it's that, you know, you're into cars, you're into sports, you're into rough and rugged activities. Well, a certain percentage of men are that, or even if you're in high school, there's a certain percentage of, of students who are following the jock category, and they're usually considered the alpha male category. But in today's world, especially with computer science, there are a lot of kids who aren't going that more alpha male you know, road and, and, and having those activities and those interests and those likes. And so the non-alpha category seemed to be growing. But yet, hmm. what I saw through counseling and what I even experienced in my own life is that if you don't fit this category, then where do you fit as a non-alpha male? And so society would tell you, well, you're either an alpha male or you're over here more like a beta male or, and you may be labeled as gay or homosexual or you're a sissy or, you know, a lot of other derogatory words that you might hear. Um, So where do those men in the middle find their sense of masculinity? And so that's what I wanted to explore. If you're not an alpha male, you're not a beta male, you're in this kind of normal middle category, what do you go through what do you have to experience? Where does your definition, your sense of masculinity come from? Wow. So that, that was the impetus for the book. And I know in my own life, as a young person, I, like I said, I was a fairly sensitive kid. I was pretty engaged and in tuned with the needs of other people. Um, and I had a leg injury as a kid that prevented me from playing sports. So I couldn't go that route. Um, and that's where I started learning to play the piano because I had to stay inside and learn how to, how to do something inside. Well, in a 1975, 76, 77 uh, computer games, you know, right. I didn't get an Atari till I was 11. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, you know, playing video games was not an option at that yeah. age. So I had to find something inside to do and that was play the piano. Okay. So then that took me into, you know, my world of being even more involved with the church and the music, and so, which is another kind of not, it's a non-alpha male role if you're involved in music and art and mm-hmm. things like that. So, you know, I, I think that there was a struggle there for even myself to find that sense of masculinity. How do I balance balance this world out and what it's telling me? And I had very little guidance from my father. My father was very present and he was a great provider. Mm-hmm. Couldn't ask for a better provider. However, he was completely uninvolved in our yeah. lives. And I talk about this at the end of the book, which I didn't know this until I was 22. Well, I knew it to some degree, but not to the extent that he shared it. Um, my father was raised by a very abusive father. Yeah. And I knew that my grandfather was somewhat abusive. He had done some things to me that my parents really came unglued about. Um, my mom even physically attacked him one time when he he threw me in a dog pen with a dog and he threw a live possum in the dog pen with me and he stood there and laughed as the possum and the dog went crazy at one another and so my mom heard me screaming bloody murder come running out of the house and i'm standing on top of the dog house house, yeah you know just petrified i'm like five yeah you know so she just come and jumped on his back and was just 
railing on him to get me out of there. <laughs> so, I mean, that's the kind of stuff my grandfather would do. Yep. So he was very abusive to my, my father, made him work on the farm since he was like age five. And so my dad vowed that when he had kids that he was not going to do anything with them. He was just going to let them play and let them be kids because he never got to be a kid. Yeah. So I grow up in this environment where my mom pays all this attention to me, teaches me how to do things. Like I can cook and do laundry. By 10, by 10 years old, I knew how to cook. I knew how to start the washing machine because yep. these were things she was teaching me. But my dad was completely absent. Yeah. He was there breathing, but he was completely absent as far as teaching me anything or spending time with me. Or, you know, I, I our church had a ball team and I would go watch the games and all these kids would be there with their dads. All the boys would be there with their dad and I was there alone. My dad didn't participate in, in stuff like that. And so I felt lost in a lot of ways of where do I learn how to become a man? Where do I get my sense of masculinity? Because it's not being imparted to me. It's not being shown. It's not being modeled. So that, that was a struggle. You know, when you talk about that a little bit, um, and I think for us to kind of be reminded of this, a, a little bit of a similarity, my dad was a, a highly sexually abused child, Ooh. okay? And um, then again, he didn't tell me, right? You know, right. your mom tells you at some point or whatever. Yeah. Um, and you know what my dad, again, my dad's way of keeping me safe and breaking that cycle is again, avoid me. Right, you know, right. not same thing. Excellent provider, you yeah. Know, like all those things, but like you know, he didn't know how to or made a lot of choices. Now again, my dad didn't bring me into the world of pornography that he battled with. Right. He never touched me inappropriately, and he didn't put me in those conversations. So it's like, okay, mm -hmm. if you got to pick mm -hmm. one or the other, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. I, I I'm glad he chose that. But I think for a lot of um, a lot of us, especially as men, when you don't know what to do, yes, you withdraw. Well, right. in, in the book, I made I make reference to this, but abuse happens in two ways. It can happen through action, yeah, and it can happen through inaction. Yeah, I remember you know, reading that. Neglect yeah. can be just as powerful or even more damaging than actual abuse. Right. At least, this sounds terrible, but at least when you're being abused, there's a tension there. At least they're doing something with you. They may be being cruel to you. But when you're neglected, the message is you're not even worth paying attention to. Yeah. So there's much, there can, can be much deeper psychological and emotional levels that are reached in a child through inaction than action. Yep. You know, and I know, like I said, I, at the end of the book, I kind of talk about this. At the age of 22, when I was just about through college, um, my dad recognized that I pretty much hated him. Because I'd spent this lifetime with this person who gave me very little attention, would provide for me. Yep. Like there, there were days, like if he knew I was going somewhere to do something fun that day, I would wake up and there would be a $20 bill on my dresser. But there was never any communication. Wow. None. Yeah. And so I'd be like, how can you do this? I remember for one of my birthdays as an early teen, he brought home this new red 10-speed bicycle for me and gave it to me. And I was just like baffled. I was like, how can you not do anything with me? You cannot talk to me. You can completely ignore me. And then you come home with this bicycle and give it to me. 
And I'm assuming you expect me to be excited, but I'm more standing there dumbfounded. Like, yep. this is such a double message. I don't get what's going on here. You know, but it wasn't until age 22 where he sat down and said, this is how I grew up. This is what your grandfather did to me. You know, and so my approach in life was to leave you kids alone so you could be a kid, so you could play. But you're 22 years old now and we have no relationship. It seems like you hate me. You don't want to be around me. And this isn't at all what I wanted or had what I had in my head. I, I did this to protect you. And, in, and instead, I ended up really hurting you. Mm-hmm. And that day he asked me for forgiveness and asked me if I would be willing to have a try to build a relationship with him. You think, you think about a guy like that, how far he moved the ball down the field, oh. right, by doing that. And it's like this idea to, to ask your kid for forgiveness, like the amount of humility. Yes. And also, like, I just hear this guy screaming, I want to have a relationship with you. Like, Absolutely. that's how much this matters. I'm going to suck my pride up because, you know, you're a pretty ungrateful kid. I paid for college. I didn't do these horrible things to you. I made sure you and your sisters grew up in a safe environment and you want to crap on me. Right. Will you please forgive me? Like, because he could have gone the other direction because that's what we do when we're hurt. He could have been very angry at me. I mean, I mean, I, I would tell him, <laughs> you know, thank you for sending me to college. I mean, I, there were ways I tried to be or express an, appreciative. an appreciation and a gratefulness, but I just couldn't figure him out. I'm like, well, and we're going to talk about shame in a little bit, but I had so much shame growing up because I could not figure out what was wrong with, with me. me. What is wrong with me? Why does this man not want anything to do with his own son? When I go to all these church functions and I see other men with their sons there and how they interact and play and toss a ball around and, you know, it's like that whole proverbial thing to get the dog to play with you, you have to tie a pork chop around your neck. I felt like (laughs) even if I did that, he still wouldn't play with me. Right. You know, I just could not get the man's attention Yeah. in, in any way. You know, and, and I think about, you know, how God uses that story for you, what you experienced. And when you're, when you're in a counseling relationship with someone, and, you know, because that story is getting played out a million times Absolutely. In, our, in our lives, right? You know, and, and I think about you learning from that experience and, and also kind of more importantly, Thank God your dad said something to you about like what his childhood was like. Oh yeah, right. Because perspective gets to change and you know grow yes. and all those things. And it's like and for you to be able to take that hurt and that that trauma and now use it in a way to help other people deal with their hurt. It's like yeah, that's pretty fantastic. Yeah. One thing I'll say, just kind of backing up to that story, the day that he presented that to me, he kind of said to me. Um, I don't know that I can go on like this in our relationship. So I either, we need to either decide that we're just not going to have anything to do with one another, or I'm asking you to please develop a relationship with me. And, you know, again, I was dumbfounded here because I'm, I'm learning all this context for my life and, and for the situation that I had lived through. And, you know, I sat there and I thought I could be angry and bitter at him or I could get what I've always wanted. And so my Hmm. words to him were, I looked at him and said, well, dad, this is all I've ever wanted. 
was to have a relationship with you. And so you took some humility. Oh. You swallowed your pride too. Absolutely. How did your relationship change after that? We are very close. Now, he can be a pretty stubborn man and sometimes difficult to get along with. <laughs> but um, I'm sure you're a walk in the park. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> like, I didn't get any of that, right? right? No. <laughs> right. So, yeah, he and I made a lot of effort to communicate to spend some time together. But at this point, it was difficult. When I was 17, I left Southern Illinois where I did not want to be, and I moved all the way to New York City. Like, I was sick of being in Podunk, USA. Yep. Give me the other end of you the know, spectrum. And I went as far away from him as I could get at 17. It went to college in New York City and was living a very different life, so we had very little interaction. Yeah. You know, we very little time together, and that's probably my biggest hurt and regret now is that I have a relationship with my dad, but I can't spend time with him. You know, so I have to talk to him on the phone. Um, you know, when they, with our snowbirds, when they go down to Florida, I try to go down there and maybe spend a week with him and we, you know, do father-son stuff, go to the beach, just things like that. Well, and this is the tension for, um, I think for a lot of men is, your relationships take time, right? And so if you have good friendships from childhood, you know, and you'll see this sometimes in a, a wedding, a guy's buddies who are standing up or have been his friends since he's five, right? right? Like, and you know, and so that's one thing, but like men nowadays, it, what we have to understand is like, it takes so long to develop a relationship. And now we have fractions of time available between career and family. Mm -hmm. You're like, how much time do I really have? It's like, you know, I might well, be right. able to give you a month, an hour or two a month. Right. Well, like, and then that, you know, relationships have to be natural. Mm -hmm. You know, you got to spend time, you got to have experiences, you got to, you know, for them to grow. And it's just like, it doesn't mean that you shouldn't do it. It's just, you've right. got to be cognizant, like, this isn't going to move fast, It. you know? Yes. You know, but I think as a psychologist and going through all the training that I've been through, I kind of knew the components to a healthy relationship. Right, and you can and so, accelerate so it. So I do feel like I was able to accelerate that progress with my father. Number one, because we were both just willing to forgive each other and say, this is what we both want. Hmm. You know, and so, you know, I made it a conscious effort to call him and tell him what was going on in my life or ask him for advice yep. and direction and, you know, just tried to build some of those things. I mean, there, there are times that the relationship can still be kind of strained or like I'll be with him and I'll be like, I really don't know what to talk about. Yep. You know, Very normal. But then I tell myself it, it's not about the words. It's about presence. We're, we're together. We're here, we know we love each other. You know, he, he had a heart issue a couple of years ago and we weren't kind of sure how that was gonna turn out. Yep. So I made sure that I said everything that I needed to say to him. <laughs> right. You know, I made it clear to him how much I loved him, how much I've appreciated what he's done for me. Like, if my dad died tomorrow, I would not have any regrets. Yep, I have good. said everything that I need to say yeah. to him as part of our relationship. Okay. So, um, in the book, one of the things that I want to talk about, um, I, there's just a couple sections I want to go sure. through with you, because um, it's very rarely that you get to talk to the author <laughs> in person here. Um, but on page 50, this is a quote you said, I once heard a statement that I often use in therapy. The only difference between a rut 
and a grave is how long you decide to stay there. I firmly believe this. Our hurts, habits, and hang-ups only have to be temporary ruts. They don't have to become our graves. We do not have to live in a lifetime of deep pain. Trauma can be dealt with and resolved. And so when I was prepping and reading through this, I hit this section of the book, and that spoke hope to me. Mm -hmm. Because I think about people, I think about people I care about, and I think about people in my life who have gone through things that I'm not even going to say I can imagine what that feels like, right? right. Like, like right. Just, just difficult things. But to know that that doesn't have to be a grave, that it can be a rut. And so as you do this in your practice, and as it, you see people come in with trauma, and I can imagine in 30 years of talking with people the things that you have heard. Right. Um, what is it like to watch someone walk in and be in trauma and think that's going to define them the rest of their life and watch them learn how to gain tools, deal with it, it and so forth, and start to pop their head up and look out and go, oh, I can have a life. What is, what's that like for you to lead people through that process? Oh, it's extremely rewarding. Um, I see it as ministry. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't just see it as a profession or a job. It, it's truly taking hope to a person and, and offering it to them. You know, another phrase that I use in the book is we're only as sick as our secrets. And that, I think that that mm -hmm. originally comes from AA. And, and sometimes that's just what people need. They've never told their secrets. They've never told the pain that they're carrying. And so, yeah, it's going to become their grave. If, if they allow this delay on them and they're in that trench and they're carrying all that, they've never shared that. In fact, I've written a second book that's at the publishers right now about male sexual abuse. The research shows that men wait an average of 25 to 26 years before they ever divulge that they've been sexually abused. 25 years. 25 to 26 years. There were two large studies one came out 25 years, the other one came out 26 years. Okay. So men especially tend to hold on to their trauma. They tend to hold on to their pain, the abuse or the neglect that they experienced. And so that's definitely going to become your grave if you continue to hold on to that. Um, I mean, if you look at the statistics about how, how men avoid going to the doctor, they die of heart attacks and high blood pressure and all these things at a young age. It's because they don't deal with their emotional material. They don't deal with their emotional traumas um, and tell their secrets to someone. They carry it around with them. That's going to become your grave. But if you, just like the Bible says, if you confess your faults one to another, and when, you, when I say faults, I don't know that that just means like stuff you did, but it's just stuff that, that you're carrying. The Bible, you know, encourages us to seek wise counsel. You know, that if... If you will go to a therapist, and it doesn't have to be a therapist, but I think ther therapists, social workers, psychologists, they're trained to help walk you out of that trench. So it's just a rut, and you can eventually spin your wheels and get out of it versus it becoming your grave. Yeah. You know, but it takes a trained pro professional to walk you through those appropriate steps. You know, I, it, when I teach college, I write the word therapist on the board and then I put a slash between the E and the R because that's the rapist. Mm 
Right, the old uh, <laughs> the old Sean Connery bit on Celebrity Jeopardy. I'll take the, the rapist for 500. Yes, you know, yeah. Through, yeah okay. because if, if a therapist kind of jumps in that trench with you too quick and just starts ripping information out of you, that's re-traumatizing. Okay. You know, and so if you sit down with an untrained, unskilled person and start opening up your heart, hmm. there's a possibility you could be re-traumatized because you may divulge more than you wanted to divulge. They may pull stuff out of you that you really didn't want to tell. But a trained therapist can help time those interventions, can help time you being ready for to tell you that. You know, I can sit and watch you and see your body language and know if you're wanting to tell me more or if you're wanting to shut down. And I have to then, as a clinician, respect that and, and be careful with you. Well, and when you start talking about people unpacking trauma and so forth, again, you know, you you talking about it with a friend that if it's that or nothing that's probably better than nothing right then you're just carrying it yourself yes but on the same hand you know as a man if you get the courage to become vulnerable or to deal with those things and that doesn't go well like that thing's going to go deeper into the vault oh than yeah it, you know it may never come back out right so I think for a lot of guys to to think about you know this idea of part of the reason you want to deal with someone who's professional and like yeah the stigma of laying on a couch that's not what's happening no. you know but like this idea is that you know you would know that like if i go here i need someone who can handle this properly right, right. you right. know and so well and so many people believe that nobody can handle what i have to tell them yep. nobody's going to believe me yeah you know it, just in the research like with people men who've been sexually abused that was some of their main thinking somebody's not going to believe me or they're not going to believe that this happened to me because I'm a male and males are supposed to like sex or that I'm a male. I should have been able to say no and protect and defend myself, mm -hmm. you know, so they hold on to these secrets and they, they, they don't divulge that information. Um, I kind of lost my point because I got yeah. up on a, <laughs> on a trail there. No, but just, but, with, just with men, it's like, you know, this is a, this is a hard thing to talk about. Very much ways. so. Right. Yeah. Just opening up and, and being able to share that because you might just let a little piece out at a time to see if the person's going to believe you. Yep. You know, um, and then if you're believed, you feel a little safer to divulge a little more. Yeah. You know, and so that's a, that's a process as well. You know, I don't expect people, well, I'll back that up. It, the research says that it takes about six sessions before a person really tells you why they're there. I could see that. Yeah, because you have to build that rapport. They have to become comfortable with you. They have to know that they can trust you, that you're going to respond in an appropriate way well, to their emotions. Well, and this is emotions. one of the things that when, I, when people start talking about going to counseling and so forth, it's like you just got to know that there's a chemistry component too. If you and I don't click, oh, absolutely. why would I continue to go? But some people are like, well, this is the counselor, so this is what I'm supposed to do. It's like, and if it doesn't feel right naturally, you're not going to be. Yes. Well, well and so, I try to do that. Like at the end of every first session that I have with somebody, I usually say, you know, I want you to take some time and think about if you think this is a good match. Do you like my style? Yep. Um, you know, and I want you to think about this. And if you don't think this is a Let's good get... match, if there's not chemistry here, 
just tell me. I'm not, I'm not gonna be offended by that. My goal is for you to, to be with a therapist who can help you with your issue. And if I'm not the right person for you, I know 50 other therapists. We'll, we'll find one we'll get you there. that's good for you. And then I usually start my second session off with, okay, you've had some time to think about us. You've had some time to think about your relationship, your issue. Right now, do where are you at with feeling comfortable about moving forward with me? Okay. You know, Great. so I, I try to help people, you know, find that chemistry and feel safe. And for the single that. guys, this is great dating advice alone too, right? <laughs> like yes. after the first one, like, hey, you know, the second one, I get it. Right, right. All right, so let's kind of move on and talk a little bit about shame because there's a sure. case study that we're going to reference here in a minute I want to talk about. But shame, how does it physically and psychologically impact and manifest in people? What are some of the um, signs of this? Okay, well, let, let's probably talk about the psychological side of that first. So... Um, you know, and I go, I go through this in the book, but any time that there's a sense of, so the definition of abuse according to the book is anything that's less than nurturing, okay? That kids tend to then interpret that scenario or that situation, usually in the guise of a filter through themselves. Like, what's wrong with me? Why isn't my dad paying attention to me? Why, did my, why is my dad beating me? Why is my dad beating my mom and, you know, drunk all the time, you know? So kids have this magical thinking that think that their thoughts or their behaviors cause everything. And so when you feel that way, naturally as a child, you start to interpret the world through your own lens. And oftentimes when things come up with a deficit or harm, um, you tend to then bring it home to you and think, well, it's because of me. There's something I did or didn't do that caused a person to react, react this way. And then shame can actually become what we call toxic shame, where you truly believe that you are inherently bad. Yeah. And we all have some degree of shame. And shame's not a bad thing. Shame, just like guilt, can be used to help formulate and shape our behaviors to be a good citizen. You know, but it's when shame becomes to a level where you put that on like a piece of clothing, like it's who you are. You know, like you you feel like you're wearing a t-shirt that says, I'm bad, I'm damaged goods, I'm whatever, the negative phrase that you might have. So then you begin to act with the world in a way of not living in what we call moderation. So you either try to over function to prove to the world that I'm good enough mm -hmm. or you have to become some uh, some level of unhealthy either through acting out behavior or maybe I withdraw you know so some more negative behavior that it's not conducive for my learning and my development um, so then when uh, when a child holds shame or just a person holds shame that can have uh, many problems with the body too, just like I mentioned before, you can have high blood pressure. You know, when you're holding on to a lot of these thoughts and, and feelings, um, your body, those get stored in your body and you kind of don't know what to do with those. You know, so you can have aches and pains and headaches and stress headaches and migraines. And I mean, just the score goes on and on about the physical symptoms that you can, can hold on to and that, Emotions translate it then into physical symptoms. Um, 
you know, there's a strong mind-body connection. Yep. You know, our, our bodies are often ruled by our minds and what's going on in our minds. So there's a mm -hmm. lot of psychological trauma, emotional trauma, and physical trauma when a person holds on to a lot of shame and they don't ever deal with that. They don't ever share that. Let's face it, none of us are born inherently bad. It's, it's environment. We're, we're pretty much born, yes, you have your genetic material, but emotionally, most of us are born a blank slate. You know, okay. John Locke, mm -hmm. great philosopher, tabula rasa, we're, we're born a blank slate. I always tell people, you are a combination of your experience. When you go through experiences, it writes on those blank pages, you know, along with your genetic material, mm -hmm. you know. Right. But your experiences help write your personality and how you're going to learn to interact with the world, how you're going to learn to interact in relationships, how you're gonna to learn to interact based on your interactions with kids in school or what society has told you a man is supposed to look like. Mm -hmm. You know, and some of those ways for especially males can be very restrictive with your emotions. Yeah. And so with shame, as parents, <clears throat> Because then you, the case study you talk about is a guy by the name of Gary and, you know, very alpha male and he's pushing his two sons to go into this, this direction of alpha male sports, you know, a lot yes. of discipline, a lot of, you know, you're, I'm going to talk to you because you screwed up and that's really the only reason I'm talking to you because you got to get better, right? Right. <laughs> and so one of the things I was kind of wondering is as a parent, what are some, <coughs> no COVID, what are some things that we as uh, parents can do that can unintentionally communicate shame? Well, the biggest thing is when, and I see this all the time, when parents have childhood wishes of their own that were never realized, and then they put them on their children. Okay. Like, I wanted to be this the star basketball player, but I never could get there, so... I want you to do that. You need to be this. And they may not even verbally say that, but they unconsciously communicate it to their child. Or they may drive their child to practice more or rail on them after the basketball game for all the mistakes they made versus, you know, all the good plays that they did. So when a parent takes their own unrealized wishes and dreams and places them on a child, that's very difficult. I use an example, another example in the book here where a, fa a family came over here from a foreign country. The dad was a doctor. He expected the kids to all be doctors yeah. and that that's the way that they would achieve success here in America. Well, this kid did not want to be a doctor, but here he is in med school, <laughs> in college, and he's failing out. He's depressed beyond belief because he's not being true to who he is. He's trying to live the father's expectations. So, you know, there's in my second to the last chapter here, I think there's there's 25 tips to parenting. And, and one of those is not putting what you want from your own life onto your child and putting unrealistic expectations on them. It's your job as a parent to get to know your child and their interests. So, for example, it's it's really kind of funny that I'm the way I am but my son is as alpha male as you can get. Yeah. 
like sports guy. Yeah. Oh, he told me the other day, Dad, I'm super straight. Do you know what super straight is? It's no. a new term out now uh-huh. for guys who have like, you know, because now sexuality is seen on a continuum. It's fluid. And, and it's yeah, fluid yeah. and all this stuff. But super straight guys have absolutely no inclination to anything else other than heterosexuality. Okay. So he tells me the other day, Dad, I'm super straight. And, and he is, you know. Right. <laughs> and there's all, this, just, you know, all these terms yeah, and stuff now. This but is just a I lot. mean, he hunts, he fishes, he'll kill anything that moves. You know, he plays every sport known to man, was on okay, so, teams. All right. So, all you, so you get to know your kid. <laughs> Absolutely. Right? Like, this is one of the things that you're talking about. You get to know your kid. Piano playing psychologist, you know, and now. How did you nurture that? Because that is that is not even on your spectrum. It's right? not like, even on my spectrum. So, so, th- you so that was difficult yeah. to some degree. Number one, I praised him. I praised him for all those things. I I went to every one of his games. I absolutely abhor football. Mm-hmm. But he was on the football team. And I went and sat through the freezing rain and the snow and cursed under my breath the whole time I was there, (laughs) you know, and hated it. But I praised him, you know, he would get in the car and I would tell him how good of a job he did. Um, I would tell him, you know, you like a lot of things that daddy doesn't like at all, but that's okay. I want you to find out what you want to do and I want you to do it with all your heart. Okay. Because you don't have to like the things I like. Okay, so then did you go on YouTube and learn how to gut an animal after you kill it? Or did you hand no, some of this off to other no. men? No, so that, that was going to be my next point is I made sure that he had the appropriate mentors in his life. Yeah. So um, our youth pastor and his father-in-law are big time hunters. They're, they were men I could trust. Yeah. I knew them well. And so they took my son under their wing and took him hunting, took him fishing. Um, and the things that I, I really couldn't do. I, yeah. I mean, I could go with him. Like the first time he caught his, he caught, he laughs at me because I say that all the time. He shot, he didn't <laughs> catch his turkey. Right. He shot a turkey at 12 years old. That was probably, or a, a, and a deer. He got a deer and a turkey in the same year at 12 years old. I was with him sitting in the blind with the older mentor that I had set him up with. And he shot the turkey and and got it and I was there and I was happy and I helped him carry it out of the woods and all that but I sat there reading a book (laughs) in the blind and I had a McDonald's sweet tea right (laughs) so this this is me in the blind thinking (laughs) when is this gonna be blazer no I had camo on Uh, and I was like okay I'm just gonna sit here until this is over I'm just gonna keep reading this book and you can't talk because you'll scare away you know the prey, all that. So, and then, you know, he finally got it and we all celebrated and everything. But I, I was there for that. But, you know, I would tell him, this just isn't dad's thing. And I can't teach you how to do this. You know, and that's with men for us. Because, again, my, my childhood experience, again, not having a dad who's super involved. The men of the church you know, that I grew up in here, you know, I had this, like this buffet you guys who are very good executives who really understood the technical world yeah. really well. Heavy guys who, you know, do the car thing and guys who do the hunting thing and so forth. And so that was helpful for me. I could kind of, you know, go through that buffet line and go, oh, yeah, you know, this is good. But for a guy to know that, like, you don't have to be good at all these things. Because I think about, like, Not at all. you know, eventually you'll die, right? And, you know, right. but, and your son, what he's going to remember in this moment is, like, 
A, my dad didn't know how to do those things. He figured out how to do it for me. And then right. he just hung with me while I did it. Right. And he's going to know you were miserable because you'll tell him. Oh, he does. Right. We laugh about it. Yeah. But like, oh my gosh, what a memory. That's how much my dad Well, because cares. we were sitting in the blind and when the turkey was coming up, I was so enthralled in watching him. The book fell through my legs and they both turned around and looked at me like, I'm going to kill you because I was making noise. <laughs> yeah. You know, and this is the, you know, you talk about identifying your kids' interests and, you know, from... One of the stories Jesus talks about, you know, in the parable son, you know, which is one of the most taught things, you yeah. know, probably in the Christian church, because it just oozes grace sure. and sure. it flips the script and, uh, and everything in life. But, you know, what you see is, is you see a father who goes to his son. You know, I, he runs to his son. Like, that's, right. that's a significant thing because of the Eastern, Middle Eastern culture and all those different things going on. But you see a father who goes to his kid, not says, you come here. Right. And, and so you find out who your kid is mm -hmm. and you go to them. Right. Right. And I'm going to meet you where you're at. I'm not going to make you come to me because you're the adult. Yes. Right. Like that's yes. the advantage of being the Absolutely. adult. Absolutely. I can have capacity to know the world's bigger than me. Right. When I'm 10, I can't. Right. right. You know, right. so like right. it's just a, uh, it's an excellent thing. So kind of one of the last things that I read in the book, and this is, um, you know, like I said, I didn't finish it, um, but mm -hmm. I'm definitely going to read those 25 tips for your parents now. because. You know, and that's I, in there. That's in the 25 tips that find out what your child likes. Because in, in right now as a that. parent, right now as a parent, I'm doing small T trauma to my kids, <laughs> and I'm trying to move it from being a big T trauma. You know? right, so I'll, right. I'll read that. Um, but you talk about men. And uh, a person by the name of uh, Griffin, I forget his first name here, um, he proposes this. Who is Griffin real quick? Dan Griffin. He's a sociologist and he, out of L.A. Okay. And so he proposes man rules. And this is what he says. He says, don't be weak. Don't show emotion. Don't ask for help. Don't cry. And don't care about relationships. And when I read that, I go, true and how's that working out for you those are the two thoughts i had at the same time not well you know that you hear this term flying around now called toxic masculinity yes and you know some people balk at that term um i think those things that you just read there are signs of toxic masculinity because we live in a society where boys are taught those things. Don't cry. Don't, don't be weak. You know, you as a parent have to counteract those negative messages that society is giving you. And one way I did that is, for example, when my son Dawson, when he would, I remember one time he got hurt doing something. And I simply picked him up, put him in my lap and said, you know what? It is okay to cry. And I'm just going to sit here and hold you until you're done crying. And then you can get up and go play. But dad will sit here as long as we need to, and you can cry until the pain goes away. Okay. So that's a very different response than suck it up, mm -hmm. be a man, you know, whatever message. It's not that, that bad. Yeah, it's not that bad. You're going to live, you know, yeah. go cry to your mother. Mm -hmm. You know, some of this stuff that alpha males kind of tend to adhere to. You know, the, the more alpha male culture tends to adhere to some of those what I would consider toxic masculinity belief systems that, 
either lead to shame or lead to some of these physical problems because you're not dealing with the emotional material that you're holding. You know, so I, I think these messages that we send boys is, is very toxic for their overall emotional development and especially for their emotional development in context of other relationships and especially with a relationship with a spouse. Because women are very emotional creatures. Mm -hmm. They're emotionally driven. And if you've been taught as a boy to completely avoid emotion, how are you going to interact with this female in your life now? And that causes a lot of problems in marriage because men only know how to relate to women sexually. Right. And not on an emotional level because of the things that they adhere to through toxic masculinity. And then you have the whole porn culture, which just adds a whole nother layer right. of terribleness to what a man thinks is intimacy. Yep. Right. So there's a lot of toxic material there that that we as good Christian fathers have to counteract with our kids and teach them how to appropriately deal with emotions. You know, I think about guys who live in this world of don'ts. You know, don't feel... Don't cry, don't, you'll know, have hurt, you know, don't right. be weak, you know, all these things. And then don't care about relationships. And, you know, I know a lot of men who, you know, they they essentially are dying for their families. Yeah. Right, because, you know, they go to they go to work, they do all these things, and all they do is give. Right. Right. And, and, right. and you know, provide and, and, provide and all these things. And you, and yet at, they get a, to a point in their life where the kids don't appreciate it either because you know you weren't ever present or you know they, there's a lot of factors and things baked into these cakes about why the relationship isn't going the way it is but since you never really cared about relationships in a way that could be reciprocated yeah because i would say men do care about relationships it's they just, do there's no expression that right yes doable it's like you're alone and you are now in a place that maybe you and your wife like each other maybe not and there's no one else in your life to give witness to you existing in mm -hmm. any real way and i think about again that was because of what jesus did and this church did in my life that's never been on my radar yeah. like i'm full of deep relationships right right and and i think about how hard it would be for a guy to realize, probably back to what your dad experienced, which is, I am not where I want to be. I'm going to eat some humble pie. Mm -hmm. I'm going to ask for forgiveness, and I'm going to ask for it to go in a different direction. And how many men aren't ever going to pony up and, and take that step, even though that's probably what they need to do right. the most? There's no shame in admitting your mistakes. You know, that, yeah. to me, that is a part of being a true man, that you have enough masculinity and strength within you to say, look, I messed up. I did this wrong. I need to ask for forgiveness. I need to apologize to you. I want to build a better relationship with you. You know, that takes a lot of strength and courage. And that's what we need to model to children is the strength and courage. You know, just like you use the word provider, so many men we know how to be pr good providers. We know how to go to work. We know how to work 40 hours a week or more um, and, and bring home a good paycheck. But you need to broaden that definition of being a provider. It's not just monetarily. 
you have to provide an emotionally rich and healthy atmosphere and dynamic with each one of your children, no matter how different they might be. It's your job to provide an emotionally rich environment for them to flourish, yeah. not just provide for their monetary needs. Mm-hmm. Okay. You know, um, kind of in conclusion, I'll use this as a little bit of my therapy. You know, just recently my, uh, my father passed away and we had a complicated relationship. Um, and, you know, at the end of his life, I really didn't see him much, you know, mm -hmm. probably call it five hours and six years. Okay, and, and we talked on the phone a little bit here and there. But, you know, one of the things that my dad did really well is um, he owned it. And, it, you know, he said, you know, he would say things like, I, I know I wasn't a perfect dad or I'm really sorry and different things like that. And so even though there's hurt. Yes. Right. And, and we dealt with it. Man, I knew I knew where his heart was at. And so, right. like, when we when we buried my dad, we could celebrate his life. Right. Even though all of us as kids had to figure out how to navigate a weird relationship with him. And and I and I look at it and, and just go, thank you, Jesus. You Absolutely. Know, like that, that's where we got to end that part of this with. And then him and I will be in heaven and, and the rest of it we get to work out there, right? Right, right. You know, and, and it's just like, <coughs> like you said, there is no shame admitting mistakes. And, and as a guy, if it, that's kind of where you're at and, and like that's the most intimidating thing you're dealing with right now. I just want to encourage you to think about it and, and pray to Jesus to give you the strength to do that because that could be the start of healing, of a changed relationship and different Absolutely. things like that. And so I want to say thanks for stopping by and for sharing. You're welcome. And finally, uh, one more time, the book's called Childhood Trauma and the Non-Alpha Male. Gender Role Conflict, Toxic Shame, and Complex Trauma, Finding Hope, Clarity, Healing, and Change. And I got to tell you, if we lived in the days when people used to come over to your house, we don't do that anymore, but, and you had this on your coffee table, I'm sure that'd be some great discussions. Yes. <laughs> but like, you know, at your, at your next wine party, be like, oh, I've been reading this. Would you guys like to talk about what I've learned? Um, so that would be kind of it, the story there. Doug's been kind enough to give us his time with us today, but he also is uh, wants to give out three free copies of this book. So we're going to drop Doug's email into the uh, comments section on the YouTube. And if you want to be one of the first three people to email Doug, you'd send him your, your name and your mail-in address, and he'd respond by sending you a book. So Doug, thanks so much for being willing to Thank you. spend time with that. If you like what you heard today on YouTube, if you could smash that subscribe button, or I'm sorry, smash that like button and also subscribe to our channel, that would be greatly appreciated. And the extended format and everything that we talked about is gonna be on our podcast. Again, that's the I'm Glad I Heard That Podcast, available on Apple, Google Play, and all the different podcasting platforms. Thanks so much for stopping by and giving us of your time. Have a great day.